It is very good to be with y'all this evening. I've been looking forward to it. I just called your pastor uh, about a week ago uh, on a Wednesday afternoon. Um, we had an opening last minute uh, this Wednesday, and we we're trying to fill it. And uh, so I started calling every phone number I could find, and uh, your pastor's was one of them. And, uh, but it is very good to be with you all uh, this evening. Uh, this is my wife, Angel. Uh, as, as your pastor does, a lot of people wonder how in the world a, a redneck from South Carolina like me got a pretty girl from New York. And uh, I, I tell everybody the exact same thing. It is simply the grace of God. That is the only explanation for that. And uh, I am very, very, very glad for the grace of God in my life. Um, a little bit about myself. Uh, I was not technically born into a Christian home. My parents actually used expecting a child as a reason to get out of church. My, uh, my mama, as we say in South Carolina, my mama was raised uh, in church. My daddy was not. And, uh, and so they used expecting a child as a reason to get out of church. And so we never, ever, ever went to church. Not for Easter, not for Christmas, nothing. Until I was five years old, my mother found out she was expecting my little brother and uh, she took the uh, ultrasound pictures uh, over to my grandparents' house. And my grandma is a very typical, sweet Southern grandma. She's just like so nice all the time. Uh, like I think she could probably say something nice about Satan if somebody asked her to. I mean, she's just really nice all the time. My grandpa, on the other hand, like hardly ever says anything. And, um, and when he did say something, it was usually... Uh, it was usually either hilarious or very, very, very cold. And uh, so he's, you know, she's showing them the ultrasound pictures. Uh, my, my grandma's oohing and on. My grandpa's not saying anything. And finally, my mama goes, Daddy, what do you think? And he said, I think I need to know when you're going to get my grandsons in church. And uh, that, was the, uh, that was the cut to the bone that my mama needed that uh, pricked her heart and made her realize that, you know, she needed to have me and my brother in church. And so from then on, we never missed church for anything. Like coronavirus, I promise you, we wouldn't have got out of church for that one. Like we might have been the only family there, but we'd have been there sitting on the back row. Like we never, ever, ever missed church. And, um, and so I was young. I was about eight years old. I made a profession of faith. It consisted of my, it consisted of my pastor asking me if I'd ever been born again. And I said, yes. And that was it. That was, that was my answer from then on. And I uh, had never, uh, never been baptized, never prayed with anybody, nothing. And so uh, I made that profession of faith around eight years old. At 16 years old, uh, one night we were in a revival meeting, and I, I had been under conviction for about three years. And there was a visiting preacher from Georgia uh, in my hometown, a pick in South Carolina, preaching a, a revival meeting at a church across town. And uh, he preached the, the message, going to hell, calling him Lord. And his passage was not all that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. And I realized that night that I was trusting in the fact that I sang in the choir and the fact that I went out on visitation, the fact that I taught a Sunday school class. I was trusting in all these things as the reason that God would let me into heaven. And he said, he named off, he literally named exactly like everything I did in church. Like helping with uh, taking care of the property, helping clean the building, helping fill the pulpit, teaching a Sunday school class. He named everything I did in church and he said, not one of those things will merit you salvation. If you get into heaven, it'll be because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ on Calvary and not a thing else. And, uh, and so that night I was like, man, he's talking to me. And I, I, was, I was like mad and under conviction at the same time because I was, I was mad that my parents were telling on me because I knew they were the only ones that knew I was lost. I was like, so they've, they've been talking to the preacher before service. So I was like mad at them. But then at the same time, I was like, man, he's talking about me. 
Everything he's talking about, he's talking about me. And uh, so I, I went around behind the pew. We were sitting on the very back row. I went around and, and got my mama, and she took her old Burgundy Schofield Bible that I had used to teach Sunday school class and go out knocking on doors and showed me from the Word of God how I could know I was saved, not because of what I did or not because of who my parents were, but because I was accepting Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. The pastor of that church, he's like one of three people on the planet that I know that does this weird like laughing and crying thing at the same time. And I heard him doing that right on the other side of my mother. And so I looked over and he was kneeling with his old black Schofield Bible showing my daddy how my daddy could know for sure that he was born again. And so uh, that night, me and my earthly daddy met our heavenly father and became brothers in Christ. And uh, that, was a real, that was a real good night for the Ragsdale family. That completely altered uh, the direction the Ragsdale family was going on both sides of my family, my, my daddy's side and my mama's side. There was never any preachers, like even far out distant Ken, never any preachers. My mom and daddy have two sons, and both of them are preachers tonight. And so, uh, so it was a very, very, very good night for the Ragsdale family. Uh, shortly after that, I had, I had these great and wonderful plans. This is stupid for a redneck from South Carolina, but I had these great and wonderful plans of, of going to Clemson University, getting a medical degree, and then transferring to Johns Hopkins University and majoring in neurosurgery. Yeah, that's, yeah you want me working on your brain? That was dumb. Thank God he had another plan, and uh, he immediately uh, began to, to convict me about the fact that that was not his plan for my life, and uh, immediately upon graduating high school, I enrolled at Tabernacle Baptist Bible College in Greenville, South Carolina, went there for four years, and my uh, missions professor when I was there was Dr. Doug Howard, a veteran missionary to South Africa. When I met him and had the pleasure of of sitting under him in, in the classes, the missions classes that he taught. He was carrying two 357 chunks of lead in his back from being shot, mugged, and left for dead two separate times. And uh, both times that that happened was within the first five years of him being on the field. He continued there for another 13 years. Later, didn't find out until after they were already saved and baptized and being discipled, those two men ended up getting saved under his, under his ministry. They never told him who, who they were until after they were already saved. And uh, they now pastor churches. They are now national pastors of two different churches in South Africa. And so I got to meet Dr. Howard and uh, talk to him and, uh, and learn from him. And, and I, I couldn't understand the type of love that he had for, for people that he would be willing to do that. It just it blew my mind, even as a, even as a Christian in Bible college. And... Um, I said, I said, you know, doctor, especially after the first time it happened, I was like, Dr. Howard, like, you know, me, I'd go get a gun. And he's like, well, it was illegal to have a gun in South Africa. I was like, well, they got guns. They're going to have guns. I'm going to have a gun too. And uh, I said, why wouldn't you go get a gun or a knife or something to protect yourself? And he said, because here's a simple fact. If they would have put that gun to my head instead of my back and they would have blown my brains out, yes, I would have been sad that I was leaving my wife behind, but they're, they're just punching me a ticket straight to heaven. And I know for sure because I'm saved, because I'm born again, that I would wake up in the very presence of Jesus Christ. He said, but if I put a gun to their head and blow their brains out, I'm sending them straight to hell. And I was like, man, I, don't, I just don't understand this. And so he began giving me books and things to read and began to encourage me to consider my place. Uh, and, and he began to challenge me, really, and, and show me from the Word of God that, that it is my job as a born-again child of God, to make sure that every human being on this planet hears the Word of God and hears the gospel of Jesus Christ and has an opportunity to be saved. And he began to, and I was like, man, that's a, that's a big burden. Like, I'm a redneck from South Carolina. What am I supposed to do for seven and a half billion people? 
And he said, well, that's just it. He said, you can't do everything, but God does have something for you to do, and you need to find out what that is. So by the time I graduated, I knew God wanted me involved in, in full-time missions in a foreign country. I was the assistant pastor at my church. I was the youth pastor. I was the song leader. I wore like 10 different hats. And so, uh, and so like I had all these things that I was doing, but I didn't know how to get from there to on the field serving and planning churches and winning people to Christ. And that's when I met a missionary from Vision Baptist Missions in Alpharetta, Georgia. And uh, I went to visit one time. He kept on me for like two and a half years. And finally, I was like, listen, I'll come visit, but I'm not going to like it. And so then we can just hush about this vision thing. And he's like, okay. And so I went down there, and I'm pretty sure it was a plan. They never admitted it, but I'm pretty sure it was a plan. First person I met was Jeff Bush. And uh, he began immediately to like nail my hide to the wall. You know it's your responsibility to make sure that everybody hears the gospel, right? Yes, sir. Well, what are you doing about it? Well, I'm the assistant pastor at my church. That's not enough. Can you do more? And I was like, well, yeah. He's like, then why aren't you? And so he began to, uh, he began to ask me questions that I didn't have answers for. And, uh, and I, think that was, I think that was his goal. And uh, by, the, by the time I was done talking to him, I was like, you know what? I know I want to be in a foreign country serving as a church planning missionary. And I think this is the best place to train me and to equip me for that. And so I moved to Georgia uh, two years after moving, no, one year after moving to Georgia, I met my wife through a mutual friend of ours. And uh, her, that mutual friend's name is Hannah. I tell my wife all the time that I don't, in the, I don't, in my, I cannot in my mind understand what my wife did to uh, Hannah to make Hannah mad enough at her to sentence her to a life of perdition with me. And so, uh, so, so uh, we got married uh, almost a year ago, it'd be a year ago in May. And um, then we had the privilege of, we were, we were approaching the end of our training there at Vision, and uh, it was time to pick a country. And I had a, I had a country in mind that I wanted to go to. My wife's heart has always been in Africa, but I wanted to go to India. And so she just accepted that we were going to India. And so, um, you know, that's kind of where we were heading. And then uh, we met the Basham family, veteran missionaries to Thailand, and, and God began to knit our hearts together uh, the same way that God has mine and your pastor's. And and uh, Philip and I get along really well, and my wife and Philip's wife uh, get along really well. And so it was like things were working really well, and they, they became very good friends above anything else. Uh, he was kind of a mentor to me, and I would ask him questions about ministry stuff and deputation stuff because we're getting ready to start deputation. And my wife would spend time with Miss Lori and ask her questions. And, uh, and then I heard him start talking about the need in Thailand. Thailand is a country of almost 70 million people. Of 70 million people... A half of 1% identify as Christian. 94% identify as Buddhist. And it's not, like a, it's not like Christianity here is here in America where you turn it on on Sunday and then turn it back off Sunday night, turn it on on Wednesday afternoon and turn it back off Wednesday night. They, they live, sleep, eat, and breathe Buddhism. It, it, it consumes their every thought. Uh, and they, they worship spirits. They believe there's a spirit for every aspect of your life, and you have to please these spirits in order to put good karma. You hear hipsters, hippies these, day, talk, these days talking about karma. They, they believe you put out good karma and the gods reward you with good karma. And so 94% of the population believe this. Not just like a little bit, like praying at the temple five times a day, burning incense 24-7. I mean, they are completely bought into this false religion. Another 5.5% are very, very, very conservative Muslims, like hang everybody that's not Muslim kind of Muslims. And so a half of a percent identifies Christian. Of that half of a percent, 
um, the three largest groups you have in that are Roman Catholic, Mormons, and Jehovah's Witnesses. So if you take those three groups out, you're left with 0.1% of the population have maybe possibly heard the gospel enough, uh, clearly enough, to have accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. So if you go out onto the streets of Bangkok or Chiang Mai or Phuket or any of the other massive cities there in Thailand and find a thousand people, one of them has heard the gospel clearly enough to accept Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. The other 999 have either heard a perverted Jesus plus works version or Mary plus works, or they've just never heard of Jesus at all and they have no idea what you're talking about. And so I, I began to hear about this from Philip. And uh, I, I actually wrote down a list of all of the young men who are training to be missionaries who have not picked a country yet, who are like straight out of high school kind of thing. They're at Vision. And so there's Chase and there's two Noahs and there's a Josh and there's a Juan and an Angel and, uh, and there's Luis. And the three of them are out of our Spanish ministry there at, at Vision. And, and all these young men are training to be missionaries. And so I started praying through this list every day that God would send every single one of them to Thailand because Philip needs more help in Thailand. Because that we know of, that we can find, there's 18 church planting missionaries in a country of 70 million people. That's like taking the populations of New York, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Illinois, North and South Carolina, and Georgia, and cramming them into an area a little bit smaller than the state of California, and then giving them 20 churches. Now that just doesn't make sense to me. And so I began to pray that God would send all these young men to uh, Thailand, because we need more laborers in Thailand. And I was like, the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, well, what if I want to send Adam to Thailand? And I was like, no, 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 no. God, we already talked about this. I'm going to India, but you need to send all those guys to Thailand. And it was like, he spoke to my heart again and said, well, is that my plan for you? Is that your plan for you? Because I thought this was about, was about where I wanted you. And I was like, well, you've, you've got me there. And uh, so I went to my wife and I said, I think we need to start praying about Thailand. <laughs> And uh, she's like, are you sure? I was like, nope, that's why we need to pray about it. And uh, so we started praying about Thailand individually. And, uh, and then I remembered what Dr. Howard told me uh, years and years ago in Bible college. He said there's three ways that a Christian can know the will of God for their life. Number one is the written word. And I, I knew, I, I, I have confirmed five times I can point to you in Scripture where Christ says go. And so I knew I had the written word. I knew I was supposed to go. And so then number two is the inward urge. And I, 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 I am at the point where if God will use me anywhere, I'll, I'll go. I just want to know for sure that he's in it. I, I don't want to do it because it's emotionalism or because it's my wants or because it's a country that I like, but I want it to be exactly where God wants me. And then number three is outward circumstances. And, uh, and so I was kind of confused on that. And uh, somebody said, well, you know, you do have a veteran missionary to Thailand that actually likes you unlike most other people you know. So like maybe that's God telling you He wants you in Thailand. And so we prayed about it. We, uh, we sought our pastor's advice, and he told us to pray about it and gave us some advice. And, uh, and so we are endeavoring to go to Thailand. We, we may never end up there. We may spend 40 years there. Uh, but we are doing exactly what we believe is God's will uh, for our life. We believe that God has prepared us specifically for such a time as this. Uh, to send us to Thailand to win uh, young men and young women and old men and old women uh, to Christ, people that have never heard the gospel. And uh, they are, they are kind of reeling from tragedy. Back early in February, you may have seen a, a brief snippet of it on the news, but there was a young man in the Thai military, about 30 years old. He took his service weapon 
and he opened fire on his superior officer in his barracks, killed him and two other uh, young men in his barracks. He then stole a military jeep, fled to a mall in downtown Karat, which was the closest city to him. He took 25 hostages and began killing them all. And uh, after a 17-hour standoff with police, him and 29 other people were dead. And if, if we even take the half of a percent being Christian statistic, it is highly unlikely that any of those 30 people had ever heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and accepted Him as their Savior. And they are now these Thai people who were, who were uh, reeling from this tragedy and this chaos. This, there, was no, there was no mental illness. There was, there was seemingly no signs that anything was going to happen like this. And so these Thai people are, are trying to deal with this tragedy and trying to figure this out. And they are being told by their government, they have a monarchy, a king. They're being told by their king that they need to look to the monks and to Buddhism for light and, and guidance in these days. And uh, we, of course, know that the end of Buddhism is not light and guidance. It is eternal death. It is eternal darkness and eternal separation from a loving God. And so, I mean, we know based off of Scripture, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so that's, that's what my wife and I believe that we were raised up for. We believe that God has prepared us specifically for this time to take us to the country of Thailand so that we can show the people in Thailand the, the errors of Buddhism and how God and how the author of this book and these words are living words and that they can trust in this book and that this book is not a book that demands that they crawl on their knees and pray or pray to the, uh, to the idols in the temple or to burn incense or to please the spirits or do good works, but that God just says, come and repent. And uh, so we believe that's what God's prepared us for and that's what we're endeavoring to do. That's a, that's a real short version of, uh, of what we're endeavoring to do. Uh, very quickly, I, uh, I will not take very long at all. Uh, very quickly, if you would, I'm going to go a little bit different route uh, than I had originally planned. If you would, turn with me in your Bible to the book of 2 Timothy. Your pastor quoted this verse just a moment ago. And I want to read this verse, and then I'm going to read a passage uh, over in Jeremiah chapter 3, if you'd like to uh, put your finger there and hold your finger in, uh, in Jeremiah chapter 3. We'll be there in just a minute, but... Your pastor quoted this verse here just a minute ago, 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse number 7. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. One of my most favorite uh, breakdowns of this verse uh, was Pastor Gardner, the pastor at Vision Baptist Church there in Georgia. Uh, he actually taught this verse to us in a Friday class with all the missionaries and missionary students one Friday morning. And, uh, and he just he went, he went through one word at a time and broke down this verse. And, uh, and if you study out this verse, it's amazing uh, what Paul here is saying to Timothy. Now these were, of course, uncertain times for them. Christians were being arrested. Uh, the Roman Empire was killing Christians left and right. Uh, they were arresting them. Uh, they were putting them under house arrest and then some, uh, many of them eventually uh, martyring them for the cause of the gospel. And so Paul here is writing to Timothy and of course this is toward the end of, of Paul's life and toward the end of his ministry uh, not long before Paul himself is actually martyred. And, and some of the last words that he wants Timothy to know is that God hath not given us the spirit of fear is his first point. Uh, See, fear is a tool used by Satan 
to control people, including the people of God. And so I, I know, and I'm, I don't even really want to mention coronavirus because I've seen it so much in social media and all over the news and stuff. But in, in these days with everything that's going on, it would be really easy to be real afraid of everything that's going on. And, and I back up everything your pastor said. If you feel you shouldn't come to church because of your health, by all means, don't come. No one's going to judge you. If they do, they probably need to get in the altar and figure out what's going on with their heart. Uh, but if, if, you, if you feel like you need to be in the house of God and you need to hear from the Word of God, then come to church. And, uh, and so follow your pastor's leading, follow your pastor's guiding, uh, but know and understand that, that God didn't give us a spirit of fear. He gave us instead, what he says, a spirit of power and love and of a sound mind. And so what Paul is saying here is when, when the entire world is in chaos, we're calm. When the entire world is losing their mind, we're calm. When the entire world is you know, running around like Chicken Little screaming, the sky's falling, the sky's falling, we're calm. Because, because God didn't give us the, the spirit of fear. We don't have the spirit of fear. The spirit of fear is something that Satan uses to, to, to control people and to discourage people. And so we don't have that. We have instead a, the spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. That sound mind, it literally, it, it, it carries the connotation, the, the idea of if you've ever on a real quiet, calm morning looked at a lake and just seen how there's no ripples, no disturbances, anything. It's just perfectly peaceful. Nothing's moving. That's what he's talking about when he says a sound mind. We're not being carried about with every wind of doctrine. We're not being tossed to and fro with everything that gets thrown our way. But instead, we're just calm. Because we know, regardless of what happens in this world, let's just say, let's just speak hypothetically, and I don't believe this, let's speak real hypothetically and say that, that this virus is like, you know, end times, like Book of Revelation type stuff, and this is going to kill off half the earth's population and stuff. We still don't have a spirit of fear within us. Because the God that saved us, the God that birthed us into His family, is the same God that's still sitting on the throne. He's always been God, and He's always going to be God. And, and, newsflash, none of this took Him by surprise. He knew before the foundations of the world that every bit of this was going to take place, and He went, yeah, I can handle that. It's just, it's not out of His control. And so we don't have uh, the spirit of fear, but we have a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. Uh, the love there, when he talks about the love, he's referring to the fact that, that God loves His children. He doesn't want us to live in a world of chaos and in a spirit of fear and in a, in a spirit of depression or anxiety or any of those things. He said, no, no, I love you. Why would I do those things to you? And so we know that God has given us these things. And then turn with me uh, to uh, Jeremiah chapter number 3. Uh, I won't read the entire passage like I normally would for the sake of time. Uh, but you know, here what's, what's going on is, is Israel as a nation uh, and then Judah, the her treacherous sister Judah is the way the passage puts it uh, in the beginning part of this chapter. What they've done is they've gone after other idols. They've actually hewn themselves other idols out of wood and out of stone. And God here is comparing this sin to the sin of harlotry and adultery. And so, I mean, in, in our minds, in, in relationships, in human relationships, the most sacred, the most pure relationship is between a man and his wife. 
And the, the most egregious thing you can do to harm that is adultery or harlotry. And so that's what God's comparing this to here. He's saying, You're, you were like my wife, Israel. And instead you went after every other God you could find. You know they didn't bring you out of Egypt. You know they didn't feed you in the wilderness. You know they didn't bring you into the land of Canaan. But instead you've went after them anyway. And you've even carved them out yourselves. You know they're not real. You know they can't walk. They can't talk. They don't have hands that can help you. And yet you're, you're still carving these gods for you. And so he goes through and he, he lists just how terrible he views this sin. And he breaks it down. But then notice um, in verse number 14 of chapter number 3 of the book of Jeremiah, he says, Turn, O backsliding children, saith the Lord, for I am married unto you, and I will take you one of a city and two of a family, and I will bring you to Zion, and I will give you pastors according to mine heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. And that's all I'm going to read in this passage simply for the sake of time. Uh, but I want to notice here the, the, the phrase that kind of jumped out at me. I'd actually never noticed until I read this passage uh, just a few weeks ago. Uh, in verse number 15, he said, I will give you pastors according to mine heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. Now back in 2 Timothy, he said that he's given us the spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. And because of that love, because of the love he has for us, here he's telling them that he's going to give them, the phrase he uses is pastors according to mine heart. And so I want to encourage you tonight, uh, first of all, not to be fearful. Not to live in a state of chaos or anxiety, because that's not God's will for you. But second of all, because of the love that God has for you, he's given you a pastor after his own heart. And I think I can affirmatively say after... Uh, talking to your pastor several times that your pastor is indeed a pastor after God's heart. He's not a pastor uh, after man's heart. You see, a pastor after man's heart, uh, that's, that is absolutely frightening, uh, but a pastor after man's heart would be selfish, would be self-indulgent, would put himself first. It would be very easy for your pastor to stand up here and demand that you be in church or else you're not as godly as he is because bless God, I'll be in church. But instead you heard him say tonight, you know, if, you, if, if your immune system is compromised or if you simply don't feel comfortable being in a, in a public space in these days, by all means don't come and we'll do whatever we can to get church to you. That's a pastor after God's heart. Because what God was saying here is He said, listen Israel, if you'll just turn to me, I'll meet you. I'll, I'll come halfway with you on this. I'll, I will allow you to come to me and, and allow you to repent and allow you to come back. And that is exactly what the heart of God is like. That's what the love of God is like. And so notice first of all that it's, you know, he's the, this pastor here is after the heart of God, not after the heart of man. And it says according to God's heart. That's a kind, loving, patient, and generous man. Because that's exactly the attributes that we see in God. When we read about God, we don't see someone who is short-tempered. We don't see someone who is impatient. We don't see someone who wishes to strike all of humanity dead. But instead, we see a God that wishes that we would come to Him and have a relationship with Him. And that's exactly what he's saying here when he says, I'm going to give you pastors after mine heart. And then notice the, the next two phrases in that. He said, which shall feed you with knowledge. So, there, so your pastor uh, being a man after God's heart and not after 
the heart of man, not after his own heart, really is what that exactly would be. Uh, but uh, being after God's heart, he's going to feed you with knowledge. He's not going to stand up here and he said several times tonight, you know, that we're not conspiracy theorists. And absolutely, we're not conspiracy theorists. Now, we believe the Word of God first and foremost. And if anybody tells anything that doesn't line up with the Word of God, we say, oh, well, you're wrong. And then if they say something that does line up with the Word of God, we accept that as being true because it lines up with the Word of God. And so we're not conspiracy theorists. We're not to follow after that ilk. The, uh, the, the type who, who get on podcasts and radio and they rant and rave about how your government is secretly controlling your mind and all this stuff. We don't have Bible to prove that, so we don't accept that. And so uh, your, your pastor is a, is a man that's going to feed you with knowledge. And then he's going to feed you with understanding, it says, is the last part of that. And so your pastor is not someone who wants you to be in a spirit of fear or in a spirit of chaos or, or uh, living in this spirit of anxiety. No, your pastor wants you to understand. And he said tonight that God's in control of this thing regardless of what happens. And that is absolutely your pastor feeding you with understanding. He doesn't want you to be in the dark. He wants you to know exactly what's going on. And so he's keeping you informed on how the church is prepared to handle all this. And so I have, I have uh, two admonitions for you tonight, Faith Baptist Church. Uh, number one, you don't live in a spirit of fear. We, we as children of God, that's not where we dwell. We dwell in a, in a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. So number one, we should not. The, the Christians today, with everything that's going on, should be not only the happiest, but the most peaceful over anybody else in this world. Because we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit who we know, based on Scripture, is also called the Comforter. Which means when, when there are troubles and trials and anxiety and fears in this world, we are still at peace. So number one, don't live in a, don't live in a spirit of anxiety and a spirit of fear. And then number two, know that your pastor was given to you by God Himself because He is a man after God's heart. He's a man according to God's heart. And He desires that, number one, also you not live in a spirit of fear. But number two, that you be fed with knowledge and with understanding. Pastor, you come.